Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week we get to do a gorgeous little trip together where we sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Patty Kashian, where I ask her, are mushrooms truly magic? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this week's episode because, honey, we are going to places that we have never gone before on Getting Curious. Welcome to the show, Dr. Patty Kashian, who is a mycologist and forest pathologist. I've never even heard of that before. She's currently a visiting assistant professor of biology at Bard College. How are you, Patty? I'm so happy to be here. So thank you for having me on your super cool podcast. So here's the thing. I have always not liked mushrooms in terms of taste. They really are a part of like what I loathe, like pickles, olives, mushrooms. I've talked about it on the show before. And even with like shrooms of the magical variety, if you know what I mean. Those like make me gag. But then we stumbled upon on Team Getting Curious, your research, and it turns out there's some stuff about mushrooms that maybe we're obsessed with, which begs the question, wait, do I actually love <laughs> mushrooms? Why do people have such a strong reaction to mushrooms? So I guess when it comes to taste, that's all very personal. I don't have any big theories for, for that other than, you know, when you're a kid, you may have had some imprinting happen, maybe some weird partly spoiled food that you ate, like an olive or a pickle or a mushroom, and you just... Well, your body remembers the experience of eating something that had gone slightly bad, maybe. Also, maybe you know this, but when you're a kid, your whole like mouth is covered in taste buds, not just your tongue. So kids actually taste things like way more than like adults do. That's why kids are so sensitive to to food, because they actually taste it more intensely. That's also why you should be really patient with kids if they don't like something. It's because they're having like, a very different experience than you're probably having. So maybe you were forced to eat it and you don't even remember the interaction, but your body remembers. That is fascinating, the whole like amount of taste bud thing. Yeah, yeah. And you start to lose them as you get older. But the point is, Patty, I don't want to be this person that like doesn't appreciate mushrooms. Like I need to and want to like change my relationship with fungi. Mm-hmm. Or fung- is it fungi or fungi? So that's a common question I get. All are acceptable, actually. You can say fungi, fungi, or fungi. I've kind of landed on fungi. It just seems to roll off my tongue the best, and I kind of, like, have committed to it. Um, It seems a little more British to say fungi or fungi, um, but all are acceptable. So whatever, you know, you can and you can bounce around. You don't have to commit. So, like, what are fungi? Okay, so it's a great question. Um, they are their own kingdom of life. So just like plants and animals have their own kingdom, fungi have their own kingdom. And they um, are essentially actually more closely related to animals than they are to plants. We have more DNA in common with fungi than fungi have with a tree. Wow. Yeah. How many species of fungi are there? Millions. Millions of species. There's actually, I think the estimate, I wrote it down just because it does change, but it's around two to three million species. So like what sets fungi apart from like plants and like us, like animals? There's a few differences between fungi and plants that are uh, like most obvious. And one is that Unlike plants, fungi don't perform photosynthesis. Um, They're not autotrophs, meaning they don't generate their own energy the way like a plant, you know, uses the sun to generate sugar. Instead, they're more like animals in that they they are heterotrophs, meaning they eat, essentially. So they produce enzymes and they basically secrete these enzymes that then chemically digest food just the way we we make enzymes that digest food as well. So they have to rely on on other organisms as sustenance like animals do. Um, they also contain cell walls that are made of this material called chitin. So there's a lot of like chemical technicalities that sort of separate them from other life forms. Ah, I am. Okay. I can't even stand how much I'm into that. Okay, wait. <laughs> so I was reading about like 
macro and micro fungi? Like, what is that? And what are the differences? So it's a spectrum. Um, you know, it's kind of actually not super technical. I would say that um, a micro fungi are basically things that are just really hard to see with your naked eye. So you would rely on microscopes to look for them. They can be something that's single cellular. Some fungi like yeast cells or, or fungi. Like fucking ringworm. Unfortunately, there are some <laughs> diseases and pathogens that are fun- fungal and Actually, the reason why those are really hard to treat is because the fungi are so similar to our cells. So unlike when you have a bacterial infection, you can take an antibiotic and the way the antibiotic functions is really much tailored to that bacteria, which is distinct enough from our own bodies that it can have like a pretty targeted effect without a ton of like side effects. But treating fungal infections are much more difficult because our cells are so similar. We share like a large percentage of our DNA with fungi um, so that when you take an antifungal, there's oftentimes more systemic side effects because it's like not as um, targeted because our cells are so similar. So basically the distinction between like micro macro fungi is like whether or not you can see it with your naked eye. Yeah, basically. What's interesting though is like when people are usually are talking about macro fungi, often they're talking about like the quintessential mushroom so all um, mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi form mushrooms. Ah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the mushroom is the fruiting body of a fungus. Not all mushrooms will form this fruiting body. Basically, it's sexual reproductive organ, and that's where the spores are produced. And fungi will have like a maybe a more microscopic component to it as well, which exists underground or in the substrate, and that's called the mycelium. Um, so the mycelium is like a network of fungal cells that extends like through your soil or through a fallen tree or through a living tree, even, you know, any type of substrate the mushroom is growing in. And that can be fairly microscopic, but then connected to a macro fruiting body. So is the mycelium like their roots kind of? I think it can be somewhat helpful to think of it like a root system, but it's actually more complex than a root system because it actually also like forages it can like exist in this mycelial state for many years years at a time and only occasionally form a mushroom which is different from like a tree that has its root system and the 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 visible structure of the tree above ground is like constant whereas the mushroom can like slip underground for like two to seven years and then like re-emerge somewhere else and it's been traveling in this mycelial form wait 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 wait. Let, let me get this straight So like the mushroom, we see it, it comes up above ground or whatever, like it's up Mm -hmm. there. So it like the mushroom itself like reabsorbs under the ground and travels like as a little mushroom under the ground. And it's like moving through the mycelium, like that same mushroom. And then it pops up somewhere else. So not the same mushroom. Once they form their mushroom, they disperse their spores and then they can either they'll probably break down, decompose, maybe be eaten by animals or by people or something. But the individual, like the genetic individual can persist and continue to move and travel and find another like habitat to live in. Also like we'll go out looking for mating partners um, and have sex and then like maybe shoot up another mushroom when it's ready, um, depending on a lot of different factors. Okay, I need to come back to fungi sex in a minute. I'm going to mm-hmm. write that down. Fungi sex. Okay, um, but what are some, like, common examples of fungi? So, um, in the grocery store, you'll probably find, like, portobello. The Latin name for that is agaricus bisporus. You will find the same species in a few different forms. So, like, the butt baby bellas or button mushrooms and portobellas, those are all actually the same species of mushrooms. Um, they're just like different varieties of it. Um, so those are the ones that most people know about. And that might be the one that you've had that you don't you really dislike. That happens to be one of the few mushrooms that we've been able to cultivate very um, regularly and, and in a standardized, like large scale way. But there's a lot of other mushrooms that are edible and, and delicious or medicinal or just, you know, doing really important things in the forest. So right now here in New York, um, it's morel season um, and morels are those mushrooms that you can usually get. Sometimes you can get them at farmers markets or sometimes at like specialty stores. And they have like kind of like we would call it a cerebriform or like brain like shaped cap thing 
Um, and those are kind of cool because they're really fleeting and ephemeral. Usually they grow only for like two to three weeks in a given location at a time each year. And it's always like the same kind of small window of time in a season, like, you know, late April, early May, depending on where you live. So those ones are pretty like famous. Um, there's also, you know, the Amanita muscaria. I think a lot of people, when they think about mushrooms, think about the red mushroom with the white spots. It's all mm. over, like, you know, it's, a, it's an iconic mushroom. Amanita muscaria is the Latin name, um, but it has a ton of different common names that are really, like, particular to different cultures. Um, but it's, you know, that's that's one that people think of a lot. That one forms mycorrhizal partnerships with trees and actually forms these complex webs of interactions where it binds with trees and kind of creates what we call a mutualism or a partnership with a tree where the tree provides the fungus carbon from photosynthesis and the fungus in return gives the tree um, nitrogen, phosphorus, sometimes water and other and other materials. And they have this like complex partnership um, that they rely on. So mycology, because at first mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell is mycology okay. when I was like, when we found you? So mycology is like, a mycologist is someone who studies mushrooms, right? Yeah, or fun, fungi broadly, including Oh yeah, mushrooms, mushrooms yeah. who says that, because we already talked about it. Fungi, <laughs> all, yeah, wait, yeah. so all mushrooms are fungi, but not all fungi makes mushrooms. Exactly. So you a, fun, a fungus could be a single cellular thing that you, you know, living in the soil, or it could be um, a complex web of interactions underground, or it could be, you know, like a, a button mushroom in the grocery store. So all of those things are, are, are fungal. And so then what, and so what do they do in the world? Like fungi, why are they so important? Basically everything that we've like can see and interact with has some sort of fungal dimension with it. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm going to explain that more. So if you go back in like deep time, like deep geological time before life basically evolved in the ocean, when life began to colonize land, so hundreds of millions of years ago, it's believed that fungi and bacteria um, were the first organisms to establish themselves on land. And it was through fungi and bacteria enabling other organisms to then transition to land as well. And it was like, Specifically with plants, fungi formed those partnerships that I was describing with plants, and that's what enabled plants to transition from living only aquatically into um, these terrestrial environments. So they facilitated the transition of life from the ocean to land. And then everything from there was sort of bound up with like sort of some sort of fungal partnership. And this cascade of like evolutionary events that followed from the transition of life to land centrally involved like fungi facilitating that or, and, you know, enabling resource um, extraction from the environment to then, you know, share with plants. And then plants could sort of continue to evolve and become larger and more complex, which then could host like more animals. And then there was just these like sort of like cascades of um, evolutionary events that enabled like the landscapes that we have here. So 90% of terrestrial plants form like critical fungal partnerships um, and they're reliant on those fungal partnerships for their own survival. So that can be externally like connecting their root systems to fungi in the soil, but also fungi live in the tissues of pretty much all multicellular organisms. So animals, trees, we actually in our bodies have more bacterial and fungal cells than we do human cells we are no yes we're like a consortium we're like a bunch of fungi and bacteria in a trench coat (laughs) oh my god yeah i know um that's a lot to wrap our heads around how so basically like fungus animals and plants are almost like destiny's child in the (laughs) sense that like those are like the three major players bacteria as well Oh, yeah, yeah. bacteria. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that one is like more important than the other, but fungi and bacteria are much more like ancient than um, a lot of like current lineages of plants or animals. But what's what is for sure true is that fungi have been at the bottom of our like social hierarchy. And that's, I think, a, a mistake and a misunderstanding of like their critical functions um, all around us. I'm into that story. Like, mm-hmm. we gotta, like, we are underestimating fungus. And mm-hmm. in 
Lotto's words, who's this like fierce ass like rapper who I'm like newly obsessed with. She okay. says, don't ever, ever treat me like I'm average. And so mm-hmm, we are mm-hmm. done treating fungus <laughs> like it's fucking average. OK, yes, yes. So we've talked about like I'm getting curious. We've talked about queer ecology with some of our guests like Dr. Mady and Andrade or like Dr. Jessica Hernandez. We're obsessed with them. Will you just remind us of what queer ecology is? Yes. Let me maybe first say what queer theory is. Yes. Yeah. So it's basically a, a, a school of thought that developed from feminist theory and gay and lesbian studies. And it's this idea of that we should interrogate like what gets categorized as normal and what gets categorized as like deviant, somehow not normal, abnormal. How did those definitions come to be or and how are they applied to the things around us? And, you know, how can we de- deconstruct those categories? Um, and it at first emerged as, you know, to discuss specifically sexuality and orientation and gender. Um, but queer theory has also been employed to sort of interrogate structures that relate to sexuality and orientation and all of that, but like are not necessarily just those things. So it's not just about talking about like sex, but it also involves like basically anything that's been high, like created into a hierarchy and that is affected by like systems of power and control and like normal, like normalization. Um, so that could be also like ability, um, you know, the ability of a person, um, race, um, nationality and, you know, other, other categories of identity that kind of interact with systems of power and like particularly Western sort of renderings of like what is normal and what is um, not normal. And usually not normal is not just like, okay, it's not normal, but like, it's fine. It's usually like a very negative characterization of perverse or, you know, just dysfunctional and disease, deadly, you know, all sorts of things. Right. It's the same reason that people are like calling like queer people like groomers and pedophiles right now. It's like, why did that happen? Some things are like, you know, fucked up no matter how you put it like pedophilia like which you know we can all agree on that but then (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's this like concerted effort by the right to say that like all queer people are groomers or all queer people are like engaging in this like thing that we can all agree is like fucked up and should not be done but it's like how is it that just like queer life has been penalized how is it that just like to live as like a queer person or a gender diverse person or you know non-binary trans Mm -hmm. whatever like why are these things being vilified and also like how do these things intersect in like so many different areas whether it's education law enforcement laws themselves like just like yeah it's like the study of like how queerness affects Everything. Everything. Yeah, everything. And yes, the grooming stuff has been really hard to listen to. Um, it's very, it's very scary actually, because of course, as, um, it's a personal reality for me and uh, as for you, um, that, you know, these things are not just abstractions. They're tied to, you know, real violence and, and real pain and suffering when you kind of map these negative qualities onto a group. So, yeah, it's like it's so fucked up. But anyway, back to mushrooms and mycology. I could imagine a reaction of people being like, okay, we have real problems here in the world with, you know, like with what we exactly what we're talking about, like child abuse and and racism and, you know, mass incarceration and all of these things. Like, like, why am I going to go through this academic exercise of like thinking about a fungus and it's like queer capacities? But what I'm trying to use actually is mycology and the study of fungi as sort of a vessel for exploring the logics that are like operating around us all of the time and are actually responsible for things as serious as climate change and habitat destruction and, and, you know, um, colonialism and, you know, and the genocide of indigenous peoples. And it's actually that these things are quite linked. So queer ecology is sort of this like an extension of queer theory where we explore the ways in which institutions and science has sort of normalized these um, heteronormativity and systems of power in biological study and, and, and scientific spaces. So how people sort of have formed questions around, you know, what they choose to study, how they assign value in their subjects, what questions they, you know, who, first of all, who gets to ask the questions, which has historically been, you know, straight white men. Um, of a particular class and then how the, that information is interpreted and relayed. And basically all along the scientific method, there are ways in which people's own experiences can like creep in and biases that exist around us in culture can sort of end up in the scientific method, even though people, you know, in science like to think that we're always just doing totally objective stuff that's not political, that has no bearing on, on you know, like um, racism or things like that. Well, one way that we can see that, like, 
science is often used to justify like transphobia or misogyny Mm -hmm. is like, you know, it's especially when we see like with trans misogyny and just transphobia in general is like, you know, it's biology. You can't fight it. Like, you know, there's men and women when Mm -hmm. that completely like writes off the existence of intersex people, which we know is like at least 2% of the population. And if there's 7 billion people, 2%, which is a low. Yeah. It's like, it's Mm -hmm. millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. And 2% is like a low yeah, it's like a low um, estimation. So it's like there's probably more. Right. So like, but like, what what other ways can um? I hate that I was just talking about like intersex people, and then in the next breath I'm going to say fungus. But even that I have to interrogate because why is it that I think that fungus is like a nasty, dirty thing or like something mm-hmm. that I wouldn't want to be mentioned in? You know what I mean? It's like I think about my best friend's wedding when that hot ass Dermot Milroney or whatever when. Julia Roberts is like, you know, apologizing at the train station at oh, the end. Yeah. And, and she's like, I'm the pond scum. And he's like, oh, no, you're line. the fungus <laughs> that's the pond scum that eats the whatever. And that's even like queer mycology is like in- interrogating like why we've assumed all these like negative connotations around like the way that we talk about fungus. But one thing that I was, oh, wait, so I'm not going to answer the question because I already know because I got to read it about your work. But for the folks that don't. Uh, and I think you'll know where I'm leading you here. Mm-hmm. How can fungi challenge our ideas of sex, gender, and sexuality? Okay, so there are many fungi that have not one, not two, not three different mating types, but tens of thousands of sexes um, or mating types. We kind of use mating type and sex interchangeably. But there's this one fungus called the common split gill, and it actually has 23,000 sexes. So just boom, the binary of like male, female, just completely out the window. So there, wait, how does that work? How do they have that many sexes, that one kind? So it's not necessarily visible on a macroscopic um, way. So it's not like there's like 23,000 different like body forms, like we would maybe expect in an animal or something. Um, But they, it's 23,000 or more and, you know, some have less, but it can be, as far as we know right now, uh, the most we've seen is 23,000 in this one type of fungus. Um, and it can basically have like there are different locations on the in the DNA that are responsible for like mating and pairing. And there's just like hundreds of different combinations on in any given fungus. And then they can like match up with, you know, hundreds of different combinations here. And when you multiply them, you get up to 23,000 different sexes. And, you know, actually, I couldn't even really summarize briefly, like, all of the different ways in which fungi have sex or perform, you know, both mechanistically, but also in the types of sexual bodies that they have. Well, we're going to have to make time because one thing I'm very curious (laughs) about is, like, sex. How do funguses get it on? Like, are we rubbing? Are we kissing? Are, are, (laughs) are, 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 Are myceliums whispering sweet nothings to the other mycelium like what is happening okay so i mean yeah there's there's so many different ways it happens in the different lineages of fungi so um but in 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 a lot of them what we know is that they have pheromones and they find each other through like chemical sensing um and then sometimes they like not only do they fuse for the exchange of like genetic material but they actually sometimes just fuse bodies and then just become one body together they like just were like okay we're one now i feel like i learned about like yeast at some point in like because like doesn't yeast just like they reproduce by just like budding exactly a lot of fungi are asexual um so yeah we got the whole spectrum the whole lgbqtia spectrum present in this so some mushrooms just spud they just break in two um yep and then just really quick kingdom phylum class order family genus species so phylum means it's a really big group right it contains many many whole lineages of things and there's this whole phylum thousands of species of them and we only know them to be asexual um, and then some fungi like switch back and forth, like sometimes they want to have sex, sometimes they just want to re- reproduce asexually, and it just sort of like whatever suits them. So what does it look like when two get together? Oftentimes, in, it's in the mycelial form. So mycelium is this like this cobwebby structure. Often it's white, it can be like yellow or brown colors as well, but very often white. Like if you go into the woods and you were to like roll over a log, you might see like cobwebby structure. I don't know if you've seen that before. Yes. 
So that's mycelium. And that's, so that's a fungus. Um, and those mycelia will sometimes do like mycelia of different genetic individuals will like kind of smell each other out and then find each other and like merge their cells and then like kind of envelop each other and trans transfer their genetic in the nu- the nuclei, which is the little part of the cell that contains the genetic code. And the point of reproduction, right, is genetic recombination and that creates diversity. Um, so diversity is helpful to organisms because it helps them adapt and evolve. So the more diverse a population is, the more resilient the population is to stress, to like disease or anything. So when you have a bigger population with more diversity, it's more likely that the species can continue on and survive. Um, but the trade-off of sexual reproduction is that, you know, it can be, you have to find the mate that works for you. Um, you might have to, you know, maybe it sometimes takes a lot of energy to do that. So sometimes asexuality is common because even though you're not really creating diversity because you're just replicating yourself, um, you save there, it's like really efficient and you can do it very quickly without much energy. So these different strategies kind of suit different fungi at different times, or one fungus might choose to do the asexual stuff sometimes, and then sometimes have sex and kind of with another organism and go back and forth. So if they have sex, though, do they, oh, is it always two becoming one permanently or do two ever like come together or is it just, or, but is it, is it that the two mushrooms never come together and it's just their like. Yeah, it's just their little, little like tenderly cells. And then will little mushrooms come up as a result of the little tenderly cells coming um, together or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, not not necessarily immediately. It could like it, There's a lot of variation in that. But essentially, yes, it could produce a new genetic, a genetic individual that's like different from its parents, right? Just like when a, a child is born from a person. Um, and then they could, that fungus then will, when it's ready, like whatever the conditions are that make it ready, whether it's like the, the temperature or the amount of rainfall or, you know, different environmental factors that might stimulate mushroom production. When that new being is ready, it'll make, it can make a mushroom that technically is like genetically distinct from, you know, any, the, the mushrooms that were made from the parents, but they might not, to our naked eye, look, they would probably look, you know, virtually identical. And do we find fungi in like every climate? Like, is it, is there fungi in like desert, rainforest, like Antarctica? Yes. There's like Antarctican fungi, like seriously? Those would probably be like the single cellular stuff, um, not so much like mushrooms, but one. So I don't know if you have you heard of lichens before? Yeah. OK, so lichens are a fungus and an algae that they're in symbiosis with. Um, so, yeah, most of the tissue you would see is like the fungal tissue. But what they have inside of them are these little algal partners that they've harnessed and they use the algae photosynthesize and they share that sugar that they're making from photosynthesis with the fungus. Um, and of all, like, I think that there's a crazy statistic. It's something like 8% of the, um, land mass on earth is covered in, in lichen actually. Um, and that they're extremely spread out. They can be in the, like the mountain, like the top of a mountain or like the desert tropical areas are in the Arctic. Um, so those are really like, um, tolerant of really extreme conditions, So, but they, because they have that partnership, they're able to live in places that a lot of other fungi can't. That is so cool. (laughs) Okay, wait. So then what's like, is there a connection between homophobia and like mycophobia? I would say so. So, um, you know, again, it can sound a little abstract at first, but. What I've noticed is that as I, as a mycologist, um, so I started studying fungi like 10, a little, maybe 12 years ago. And, um, I, you know, I was drawn to them in large part because I was really mystified by them. I, I was like, felt this like kinship with them. Um, and I was like transfixed by their, their sort of, um, unusual form and and they're like, like they were just really fascinating to me because they didn't, they defied expectation. Um, and as I began studying them, I realized that it was like all around, like whenever I would even tell people that I studied them, I would get all 
manner of responses, like some like outward, like disgust, even I have memory of telling people like I study mushrooms and they're like, Ooh, you know, they have make a face and they cringe. And then, you know, some people were, you know, would maybe just ask about, you know, make jokes about psychedelics or, you know, they, I don't, you know, there was all sorts of kind of responses and none of which were really people being comfortable or like excited. I started to realize also that these perceptions of mushrooms themselves were extremely common, like particularly in the United States, um, where it's where I've grown up, um, that people just were like, they, they were very afraid of mushrooms. They didn't want to touch them. They assumed they were poisonous. They assumed that they were deadly and going to hurt them. Um, and they didn't try, even, even when I was studying them, they sometimes didn't trust me if I told them like, oh, I've, you know, I, I'm pretty good at no, like studying them now. And this is, I'm telling you that this is edible. They would be like very afraid um, and then I started to also realize that even in, in scientific spaces, they weren't taken very seriously. They were always like, if they were considered at all, they were like the sidekick um, to other organisms and or they were just studied as pathogens. So like a lot of the departments and universities that study fungi will house the the, the study of mycology under this umbrella of like plant pathology or or forest pathology, which is technically what my degree is in. So it's like, it's assuming that, that the fungus that you're going to interact with is going to harm you or something else. And that's like the lens through which they were approached as like, they're harmful and like, we're seeking to eradicate them. You know, now that we're in this context of climate change and, and mass extinctions, fungi are like materially really not represented in protective efforts, but they are, we, we do know that they're affected negatively like everything else. So these perceptions have like really material consequences. Um, but also like going back to what you said a few moments ago about like, you know, you didn't want to follow up, you know, describing a, a group of people with then turning to the word fungus. Like the idea that we could create such a disjointed relationship with, um, you know, the non-human world is an artifact of colonialism and and like western imperialism um like the fact that we have this massive rift between us and the organisms that we've co-evolved with for billions of years that we've been on this billion year long journey with the fact that we could like look down upon them is a function of this idea that we can ex like it's it, it's a way of creating distance so we can then exploit them and extract from them. And that's the logic that operates also within like human hierarchies as well. Like if we racialize this group, then we can take advantage of their labor without guilt. Or if we describe women as being irrational and stupid and, you know, only good for particular things, then we can be comfortable with dominating them. Um, and with queerness, it's like we, we've, felt comfortable shunning, you know, as a society, like shunning people who are queer and describing them as perverse or dysfunctional or disease, you know, degenerate in some way, because they're embodying a reality that is, is um, threatening to sort of institutional modes of control and the functions of power in like the context of um, our society, which is like nuclear families, um, a particular brand of Christianity and um, homophobia is very disruptive to that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, again, it, it certainly can be a bit academic and abstract, but I think what's going on here is something very tangible and very material, um, which is this idea that we are in this climate crisis now because we've been so comfortable just plundering the earth. Um, and that for the first step in, in doing that is to distance ourselves as people from all of the other animals and fungi and plants and bacteria around us. So I think that's incredibly wise and so observant and beautiful. I wrote down as you were saying that, that in yoga, one thing that we would say is that like you learn to live your practice on the mat, like mm -hmm. off the mat. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of reflections of your, the, like of your relationship with yourself on the mat that you'll see like out in the world. Like if you're really mm -hmm. quick to give up on the mat or if you're like pushing through an injury on the mat to a point that's like hurting yourself or if mm -hmm. you're like, you know, it's like you'll notice that you'll have those tendencies like in completely other areas. And then that also is making me think of like how you do something is how you do like anything. So right, these connections right. are like, it, you know, I can see how you would think like, you know, it is esoteric and I wouldn't or like how people would how you would be like, oh, people might think that. But it is so true that especially we we have to interrogate like who who told us that who had we learned this stuff that's mm -hmm. just incredibly interesting.
Now, to kind of go back to something else you were saying, um, how like people would be like, oh, like if you're like this mushroom is safe to eat, and they're like, oh, I don't know, because I feel like <laughs> I probably wouldn't eat it. Like, I'm not gonna like the taste, but not that I wouldn't trust. But what <laughs> is the ratio of like? harmful mushrooms to like non-harmful ones like out in the world like because some can like fuck you up right or are we like way overblown afraid of mushrooms than we should be i would say that we are completely our fear is overblown because there are there are absolutely mushrooms that you should not eat you should be 100 percent sure of anything that you find like of its identity before putting it in your mouth i want to be on the record saying that um, but, um, there are actually more poisonous plants than there are poisonous fungi. So the fear of them, like the odds that you would encounter the extremely deadly one is actually not super high. I mean, it's, they're, they're around, right? They are, but like, oh, if you pulled a hundred mushrooms from the forest, maybe only one or two could actually really hurt you. Um, and all mushrooms are safe to touch. Like you can, you can handle, pick, pick, even like put right, you know, right up to your face, like a, completely safe to do that. Um, which is not true for plants, right? You know, we have poison ivy, poison oak, um, poison sumac, all sorts of poisonous plants that are you can't even touch, right? Yet we don't map that quality of like dangerous and diseased onto all plants. Um, we have like, we're comfortable having this like, you know, dynamic nuanced relationship with plants where we have good ones and then ones we should stay away from. And that's what, you know, it'd be good to have with mushrooms too. Like, why do we need to just deem all of them just bad and scary. You also can have a positive relationship with mushrooms without eating them. You know, I think that there's been a surge of interest in mushrooms in the last two years, which has been really interesting to see as a mycologist. And I'm very excited about it. And, you know, I've recently been, you know, like a lot of mycologists have been more recently finding that our knowledge is more like desirable. But I think a lot of the interest currently is like very focused on people wanting to like figure out what they can eat and forage. Um, which is totally fine. But I think I'm, I kind of encourage people to go beyond that and like, not just like, you know, ask what like fungus can, like, what can they put in their mouth? But like, how can I like have um, a, a relationship or an ethics of care with, with these species? Like, how can I protect them, learn about them, speak lovingly about them and sort of just like curate this like appreciation that doesn't have to be like this transaction of like, okay, I'm going to take this and put it in my mouth. Right. Ask not what mushrooms yeah. <laughs> can do for me, but what I can do for mushrooms, yes, honey. Yes, exactly. I, I literally said that to my friend the other day. It's like JFK, baby. Yes, um. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. like... It kind of gives me like that water study that I'm always talking about. It's like, because fungi must have some water in it and then we have water in it. So Mm -hmm. if we're talking shit about fungi, then it knows we're talking shit about it. Doesn't feel good. And we got to speak lovingly about everyone around us. Now, going back to what you were saying before, sorry, I'm zigzagging everywhere. But it's like how you do anything (laughs) is how you do everything. And so that was really resonating when you were saying it's like, really, I feel like what I heard you say is that like by othering stuff Mm -hmm. it makes us you know more likely or feel better about like plundering it or like Mm -hmm. taking what just taking it or like harming it or whatever just like by othering it and so it's like that's kind of where like the mycophobia and the homophobia is like it's like it all has to do with like othering like people things and like and it like just it's like It just makes us feel like we don't have to, like, care or, like, respect something as much, like, when we feel like it's, like, othered in the first place. Exactly, yeah. How do you see this relationship between uh, mycophobia and homophobia uh, evolving today? So um, I think it's a it's a pretty new conversation. Queer ecology has been in the works for a few decades now, but I was really struck by how, you know, Fungi are this like perfect example in so many ways about, you know, how all of these um, sort of social influences have converged to sort of vilify a group of organisms. So the paper that I uh, wrote on queer mycology, the science underground, um, and I co-authored it with a friend of mine, Hosmik Jalakian, we put forward that idea like queer mycology. That was an original contribution for us to, to put um, forward. But it's also about, I think it's also about this idea of control, right? So like 
we as humans, it's pretty natural to have fear over what we can't control, whether it's in our personal life or whether it's other things around us, groups of people that we don't understand that are different from us. So I think fungi, because they're they're not like so predictable and they their biology is such that they're very like kind of fluid and and um unfamiliar we we there's this fear and revulsion that kind of we've associated with that and fungi have also been associated with like the like witches and demons and sort of the underworld um throughout a lot of like western european history and it's a very entrenched idea that like fungi are associated with like these negative perceptions of the underworld or negative spiritual perceptions Queer ecology, although it's been around for a little while, there's been a surge of interest in it in the last year or so. Um, and so I, I think the conversation is just going to really keep rolling. And I'm, I, I've, there's a lot of people coming out with really interesting work in the realms of queer ecology. So th- I think these conversations are, are really just starting to like really lift off. So I'm excited to see where it takes us and how it can hopefully translate to like materially benefiting our environment. I'm a dum-dum. I got so excited about hearing about... Um queer theory that that mm-hmm. I we didn't get back to queer mycology because like you guys literally invented queer mycology and then you were just <laughs> talking about it but it's like can you tell us and then we, we kind of talked about like what it is but it's like mm-hmm. it's really the idea that it's like like because it's like how all of the like really right-wing conservative people be like you know there's two biological sexes and mm-hmm. like sex works like this and, re- and reproduction works like that it's nature it's god it's like how it was set up and then really what y'all are saying is like yeah but also there's this like other way that's like totally <laughs> not like that and there's like literally 23,000 different sexes yes. you know mm-hmm. here and so but it's like we never really got to explore that because it was a bunch of like white dude scientists making the science exactly a lot of like a lot of our early scientists were um, you know, yes, white men, but also people who are like explicitly um, Christian um, and like like actively trying to demonstrate that the organisms that they studied, you know, were in some sort of hierarchy in terms of who was closest to God. Um, and obviously, you know, able-bodied straight white men were at the top and then all sorts of other people were beneath them and then you know then like at the bottom of that ladder would have been the creepy crawlies like the degenerate organisms um and you know maybe in the middle are like horses i guess we'd like to think like oh science has always been this very objective very clear-cut body of work and you know i am a scientist i love science so i'm not like anti-science obviously which i'm also always like nervous that someone's going to accuse me of that in you know particularly in this very politicized environment um, but, you know, I'm, I think it's really important for scientists to be very science critical while being like science positive. Like, let's say like, yes, yeah, science is like a really great, really powerful tool. We know so much stuff because we've studied science. Like we know about the atom. We know about how our immune system functions. We can invent these crazy vaccines really quickly. By crazy, I mean like in- incredibly effective and powerful. So it's been used in this way that's really remarkable. And I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm impressed by, right? But it's it's easy to forget that like not that long ago we had people who had extremely bigoted, extremely negative relationships with like other groups of people. It was only like a hundred years ago that women were allowed to participate in the Linnaean Society in England, which is like sort of like the like an you know elite group of scientists. And of course, people are even now, if they're not like explicitly excluded, they're like very much systemically and functionally excluded as much as possible from, you know, getting grants, getting um, tenure track positions, from being, you know, senior faculty members. Um, even getting into grad school in the first place requires often either a lot of resources or just like a lot of luck or like a strong family network, you know. So it's like there's still a lot of odds stacked against a true diverse group of people operating within science. Um, And of course, I mean, most heinously, you know, science was used in like eugenics, right? A lot of arguments are are in favor of eugenics use sort of scientific logics and like, you know, measured people's faces and took all this data and tried to like build argument that, you know, certain people were more intelligent and more less likely to be criminals and all of that horrible stuff. Um, so I th- it's just really essential that scientists like reflect on that history and like, don't just like sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened. Carl Linnaeus, who was a really famous biologist and he's considered the founder of modern taxonomy, like the naming and sorting of species. He did a tremendous amount of really cool work, but you know, he was pre 
Darwin, so he didn't know about evolution. And he explicitly thought, he was one of the people who thought like there was a great chain of being and the people like humans at the top were closest to God and everything else was just like muck that like organisms that were not good at what they were trying to do basically. And he explicitly hated lichens. He called lichens um, Rastichi pauperimi, the poorest peasants of the vegetable class or whatever. But that's like the bedrock of science is like situations like that where people were really subjective about it. They had their own like agendas, sometimes very explicitly. And that's like the foundation of science. Right. Um, so we have to like, we have to do, there's a lot of work to do to like dig into that, pull it apart and like try to figure out like what to keep and what to to throw out. So yes, you also just said taxonomy, which is like, mm-hmm. the, like it's like the, the categorization of things. And yeah. you've done so much incredible work in fungal taxonomy and like getting into like understanding more about like differences between fungi and like where they come from. But you've mm-hmm. also done a lot of like ethnographic research around the world, which like, again, I didn't even know what that word meant mm-hmm. until like this episode, which like yay for us. But can you mm-hmm. share some of that work with us? The ethnographic work that I have done hasn't been like super formal. I've often like, lo- like kind of blended it in with with trips to study like the taxonomy. So I look for and name and describe new species and I conduct a lot of biological inventories where I'm trying to like figure out like, okay, what what's the species diversity in a given place, right? And um, try to get like data about what, who lives where. And, um, and on those trips, like I've been n- numerous times to Central and South America. I've been to Bolivia a few times and Costa Rica and per- the Peruvian Amazon um, and the first time I, I went to the Peruvian Amazon, I had the like pleasure of working at this biological station that was extremely remote. It was like a 12-hour boat ride from the from Iquitos, Peru, which is a plane ride from anywhere. Like you can't drive to Iquitos. Very, very remote. Um, and my time at that it was called Madre Selva Biological Station, a very small station. Um and Basically, in the vicinity of that area are Yagua people who are indigenous people to that part of the Amazon. And I was like conducting a survey for the mushrooms around the field station. And then I would also go into the communities around and sort of just speak to people about what mushrooms they used for culinary or medicinal purposes. And then write those down because part of the tragedy of the, of colonialism um, is the loss of ethnomycological data, so meaning like the ways in which people use mushrooms, or and same with plants and other things. So unfortunately, there's been tremendous loss of knowledge um, through the, you know, genocides and forced displacements of people, and also the language can um, force to like linguistic conversions of, of many groups. Um, and so that names of things that had, you know, certain meanings in particular languages were lost as well. So I actually learned about a few um, fungi that I didn't know had people used in any way. Um, one is one is called Pycnoporus cinnabarinus, um, which is this bright orange like uh, mushroom that grows on wood. It's like an electric orange. It's very very cool and shocking looking. And one thing I learned from them is that they use it as like a poultice to grind up and put on wounds. Um, just because it has like antimicrobial and antifungal actions. I also learned in, in Bolivia, I went on, um, was doing a mycological study there. And in the markets, um, my, I was with some Bolivian friends and uh, colleagues, and we walked around the markets to try to see if someone had um, this fungus that grows on corn, like, and it, it kind of invades the little corn um, kernels and then be, like, bursts out of it. It becomes like 10 times the size of the original kernel. It's like a gray kernel that like pops out. It's very cartoonish looking. It's actually eaten as a delicacy in Mexico by um, people throughout the the country of Mexico. But in Bolivia, people had a very like um, suspicious connotation of of it being like really bad luck. I just think it's important to like ask people about their usages of them and kind of figure out what, what dynamics they have and what sort of relationships they have with these fungi. So I haven't done it in a super organized way, but I just try to always make that a point if I'm traveling to like engage with people about like their usage and and sort of record that information. Um, And then most recently I've been working in Armenia, which is where my I've ancestrally from. And one project that I have developing is like trying to translate a lot of old Armenian texts to see like what fungi were used and in what capacities and try to like digitize that so it could be like widely accessible. 
That is so cool. Wait, so do all my colleagists like chat with each other? Like, do y'all like have cute little like mycology? Like, like, and if so, like, what's the word on the like ground about like what's the current state of like fungal biodiversity? Like, is it just like all fucked up like everybody else is, or is it like kind of okay? Or like, what's what's the tea? Academic mycology is a pretty small world, so yes, a lot of us do know each other, or at least know of each other. Um, and we go to off. I mean, now it's been a minute since COVID, but you know, we usually go to like the annual conferences, and it's like a weird family reunion in those conferences. <laughs> Um, but the, the word on the ground is not, not great. I'm sad to, sad to say, um, we, you know, we fully expect that fungi on average are going to be negatively affected by climate change. So, you know, habitat loss, especially, but also increasing temperatures and drought, fire, pollution. So, um, but what's, what's tricky is that we really don't have a lot of data on, on, on the fungi. And then therefore it's been really hard to like track. And that has to do with fungi being so poorly studied because of all the reasons we were talking about. Um, and then also because of, again, with their, their sort of, you know, their queer nature makes them challenging to study and that they're like, they're, they don't fit in the box super easily. And it's hard to get like really solid, like information about where they are and how they're doing. Um, Cause they're, they kind of defy our expectations and our attempts to quantify them. So there's this body called um, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And they keep track of like species um, globally and they're like how threatened they are. Um, and there's a what's called the red list. Like if you get on the red list, it means that you're endangered or threatened in some way. There needs to be quantitative data that proves that you're threatened to get on the red list. And so for the reasons I just mentioned, it's been really hard to prove that fungi are threatened and endangered because like so we have so little funding compared to other groups, so few fun mycologists compared to other other organisms. Um, and then their weird biology. So we have right now about 500 species of fungi on the red list. But um, I think there are 58,000 species of plants on the red list and like 12,000 insects alone. So like the disparity of like what's being kind of considered and taken care of is like enormous. Mm. Someone could be misleaded by those numbers and think, oh, fungi are just not in trouble. We wish that was the case, but um, it is that they're in trouble. We just don't have enough data to prove that they are and then get them protected. Um, so that's something that a lot of people are working really hard to like do. Um, but one thing that I'm kind of like in favor of is just, saying, you know, we shouldn't have to prove that they're endangered. We should just be protecting them as much as possible. Right. But it's like, you know, only love to do things when it's an emergency. Oh, yeah, this is a good question. So how are like certain fungi indicators of an ecosystem's health? So um, so going back to lichens, actually, they, this is one of the better known examples of that. Lichens are really sensitive to air pollution um, because they absorb their um, all of like their nutrients that they eat and like the water that they need just right through directly through their their like tissue right through the just like the whole body just absorbs it. Um, so it, that's one of the reasons why they've been able to successfully grow in all these different places because they don't need to have like a root system or a mycelial system so they can just or right on a rock or like on a tombstone even, or like, you know, in the tip of a mountain. Um, but unfortunately that same ability to like, that has enabled them to, to be so successful around the world also makes them really sensitive to like atmospheric pollution. For example, sulfur dioxide, which is a common um, byproduct of like combustion engines. Um, so like road pol car pollution, mm. um, they're really sensitive to that because when they absorb it into their bodies, it can actually like denature, break down the um, chloroplast in the algae that photosynthesize. So then they're not getting the nutrients anymore. So some lichens are way more sensitive to that than others. Basically, like if you look at a city um, and you were to like survey in the city for all the lichen species, like in New York, for example, you would find some species would not be able to survive there because they're too pollution sensitive. But as you kind of radiate out away from like dense urban areas into like um, areas that have cleaner air, um, you can find more and more species um, popping up. Like and they and so basically diversity of these lichens will increase as air becomes cleaner. So you can actually use those lichen bodies to sort of monitor air pollution and like the effect of like any policy that may have been trying to like minimize air pollution 
you can just take a reading of like the um, sort of amount of these particular compounds in the air. But if you really want to know like how it's actually affecting like an ecosystem, lichens are like a more nuanced way to do that. Interest. Um, yeah, yeah. I also studied this like really um, unusual group of fungi that live on insects. I'm looking into seeing if those can be used also as indicators of like pollution in more aquatic environments um, because because they like are parasites on insects, there's like two kingdoms that you're kind of looking at. The ability for those fungi to be present in the environment is means that a lot of things have to be going right for them, right? Um, so I'm sort of interested in studying, like, can we use these insects and their fungi to sort of tell us if if um, a, a lake is being overly polluted or, um, you know, if, if a conservation effort has been successful in helping um, a, like a, an area recover. How often are we like discovering new types of fungi? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> For the most part, you know, new species are being described on a daily basis. Uh. Um yeah, it's really exciting. And if you play your cards right, you know, sometimes some, someone can name a species after you. I know there was just a millipede named after like Taylor Swift or something. Fierce. <laughs> um, and then like, and then I hear it's like we need more research on the conservation front, more, just more hands on deck for the conservation front. What's left to learn about fungi? Hmm. We've only described about 150,000 species, which is a lot, obviously, but it's only 3 to 5% of the species about to exist. So we need to continue to describe new species because once you have a species described, then you can start to understand like what it's doing, what's its role in the environment, what is it in relation to, um, and then that you know can answer so many questions about like how organisms are interacting and how like the different functions of of the, the world around us that are still pretty mysterious. Um, so I think that that's something I, I'm very interested in is just like continuing to describe species because once you give something a name, then it's also better, more easy to protect it or get people to care about it, right? So. Um, that's a, I think that's one of the bigger projects, but a lot of people are really excited also about like all the different chemical compounds that are present in fungi. You know, we have fungi to thank for a lot of the medicines that we have today, like penicillin that comes from the fungus penicillium. Um, and that been, you know, has saved millions and millions of lives. Um, so, you know, there surely are new compounds that we don't even really know about in fungal bodies that would, could be really helpful to people. Um, so, that's something for sure that, you know, is very exciting um, to people doing like pharmaceutical research. Um, I think also just sort of being able to be good stewards of the land could is going to be improved by like a deep knowledge of fungi and the ways that they're working with us in the environment. Um, so fungi are often used for like remediating um, habitats that have been degraded through pollution, such as like oil um, spills or even nuclear waste, heavy metal waste. So uh, continuing to like develop research around like exploring that to like clean environments up and help people like, you know, help combat um, the harmful impacts of pollution on communities and urban areas and also in wildlife um, protected areas as well. So that's an excite really exciting area of mycological research that really is vastly underutilized at this point. And then you said earlier that you've been studying fungi for 12 years. So like mm-hmm. you're mining your own business. It's like 12 <laughs> years ago. It's like 2010. And you're like, I got to get into fungi. Like what drew you initially to this work? So my first loves growing up were like the snakes and the swampy stuff, like critters that were really underappreciated, undervalued and misunderstood. I, I, I felt an early kinship with them based on sort of my own experiences. A big portion of my childhood, I was ex- had extreme gender dysphoria. Um, and I felt a lot of like safety, I think. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I think I felt a lot of safety in the presence of these of organisms that were a little bit also like misunderstood, a little bit maligned, a little creepy, a little weird. Not that if you have gender dysphoria, you're creepy, but I felt like just not, I didn't know what I was or who, you know, how I belonged, I guess. Um, So that was an early part of my like consciousness was sort of this kinship with those organisms. Um, And then like, I guess I, the first time I encountered fungi specifically was, yeah, around 2009, I, took a semester off from college because I really wasn't sure what I was doing. I was kind of 
pre-med, but I was like, didn't like that like rigid structure. And I was like, I, I don't know. I took some time off and I ended up taking a naturalist class at Cornell to learn about like the organisms in the area. And um, cause I'm from New York. And um, there I met my first mycologist, Dr. George Hudler. And at the time he was a professor at Cornell and he wrote this really great book called Magical Mushrooms, Mischievous Molds. And it's sort of about like all the times in history that fungi and humans have sort of like collided um, positively or negatively. And he was like really effective at communicating about the importance of studying mushrooms. And I was just like hooked from then on. So I, 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 that was what I had been like kind of looking for was like, okay, I know I love being, I know I love biology and I've always felt this kinship with these sort of unusual organisms. And this just was like a lightning strike. I was like, okay, this, <laughs> I never looked back. And that, that was, yeah, I've just been gone down the rabbit hole ever since. That is so fascinating. I love that entire story. And then, so like after these years, like what continues to just like surprise or delight the shit out of you about Bungie? <laughs> I'm just really in awe of their, of their beauty. It grows on you, I think. Um, so if you don't feel it right away, that's like perfectly fine. I recommend like looking at just like fungal glamour shots, which you can find on the internet, just like really shockingly beautiful. They just discovered that purple one in Arizona for the first time, and it was really stunning. Yes, so stunning. And there's so there's like every color on the spectrum. They're completely black mushrooms and fungi. And then you have like pure white and then like orange and pink and blue and like fuzzies and all sorts of things. So just I'm just never over it, I guess. Also, I think because they're so ephemeral, you like have these different seasons where you see like these different beings that and you're like in every season it's like oh like it's our again like a, a, a reunion like of seeing these fungi that you haven't seen for the last like 10 months so now you get to find each other again and so just like deepening those relationships uh, I think I just it it is del- it's delightful as as fuck <laughs> uh-huh. so yeah so then I also we loved learning that you're a founding member of the International Congress of Armenian Mycologists, obsessed with the title. And you also (laughs) mentioned earlier that you have Armenian heritage, which is just, Mm -hmm. I love when we can like layer in who we are and to what we love and like make that a part of the story. Can you tell us that like founding that and like what um, the Congress of Armenian Mycologists aims to do? Yes, thank you for asking about that. Um, so it's pretty recently founded. Um, Believe it or not, there are more than just one Armenian mycologist in in living currently in the US um cuz there are there are very few armenians so i even though i'm also part irish i'm like very attached to my armenian identity my last name kashian is armenian um and that's because in large part there was the armenian genocide in um to around 1915 to 1917 so actually only about 200,000 armenians survived that so we're extremely small, like ethnic minority group. So the identity to us is like very, very significant. Um, and I'm in the U.S., you know, alive now because my um, great grandparents were able to survive that and come here. And that's true for for most Armenians living in the U.S. today, that it was like a you know forced displacement. So, um, you know, to be Armenian is to be very much aware of these like struggles of, of, um, of, of genocide, of colonialism, but also of like resilience and, um, sort of like strength and, and, bo- and bonding to each other. Um, so we, a few of us, um, decided to form this group in 2020 because unfortunately there was like another flare up of ethnic cleansing in, um, indigenous Armenian lands. But like we're here living in the US and we like are scientists. So like it was very like hard to just kind of watch it all happen, but feel like we were kind of powerless to it. Um, so what we kind of decided is that, you know, you know, again, like while it seems like there's not necessarily a very direct link to that kind of struggle and the study of fungi, kind of tying into the themes that I've discussed like like moments ago, like, you know. Um, protecting biodiversity is good for, is good for human diversity as well. And, um, often what we've seen are, with colonialism all around the world is that biodiversity declines in the presence of colonialism and colonization. Um, so protecting biodiversity and like jo- joining that with like so a social advocacy for like the sovereignty of Armenian, um, Armenian, but also in, in general of an indigenous peoples is something that we kind of made our political aim to be explicit about the fact that we seek to protect biodiversity in conjunction with like, human diversity. Um, 
So what we are doing and started to do last summer, we went on a sort of a pilot trip to Armenia to survey some areas that we're going to continue to do some research in. And we wanted to have like a very multifaceted research program in Armenia where we're collaborating with with people who live there, our friends and colleagues who live there. Um, So we're trying to raise money to rebuild their laboratories, which are extremely um, dilapidated. Um, So we're trying to like apply for grants to, to, build infrastructure for for scientists there and then sort of do collaborative projects where we like share grants and publications because we as American scientists we can get way more access to like high amounts of funding compared to what's available in Armenia so we want to sort of like channel resources there and then kind of collectively look for new species of mushrooms translate Armenian texts and do outreach to like educate people about the value of protecting land and being good like stewards of the land. Ah. It sounds like you have so much exciting, important work that is happening and that is on your plate. I'm so excited. I feel like we learned so much. Is there anything about mycology or queer mycology that you feel like we missed or like mushrooms and bungee that we must get out in the world that we... I know one thing I missed to say is that your hair looks amazing. I just had to oh, say it. thank you. Before we you have amazing hair. But is there thank anything you. that you would just be remiss if you're like, oh my God, I can't believe we didn't mention X, Y, Z. I think, um, you know, everyone has a, a, a role to play in like climate change and even and, and in science. Um, so I think that some people feel like they can't be involved in science because they didn't have the proper like classes or training in a formal institution. But one thing that I think is really important is that we all can be like stewards of the earth and we can all actually even be valuable to to the project of, of science and like knowledge creation. Um, so I just, I'm, I don't know. I just want everyone to feel like they can be part of it. And that, and I mean that in a super genuine, not just a gesture way. Like we all can like help protect each other, both like other life forms and like human life forms. It's like, we're all responsible and we're all capable of that. So I just want to like end on that kind of note. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I couldn't end it better myself. <laughs> Thank you so much, so much, Patty. Um, you've been incredible. Thank you so much for your work. You're the best. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you. <laughs> you've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Patty Kashian. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, honey, introduce a friend or 10 or like 75 and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 